Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello and welcome to the Naked Scientist's News Flash, where we take a weekly look at what's hot in the world of science. This week's episode is brought to you by Chris Smith and Helen Scales, and I'm Ben Valsler. Coming up, we hear how a rock commonly found in the Earth's crust could be used to lock away carbon. For every one kilometre cubed of rock that you involved in this reaction, you could re- remove from the atmosphere something like 4 billion tonnes of CO2. So that's more than 10% of what we produce every single year. And why hotter environments lead to unexpected activity from forest fungi. When temperature increases, fungi living in the forest floor dry out and emit less carbon dioxide, which is actually the opposite of what researchers expected to find since colder climates are thought to slow down the processes by which fungi produce carbon dioxide in the first place. That's all on the way. People are very worried everywhere about the concept and prospect of global warming and the fact that by burning fossil fuels, we're churning out something like 30 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide every single year. And whether or not you think that does make a difference to the Earth's climate, dealing with that problem, i.e. preventing that release of CO2 into the atmosphere, can't be a bad thing. But how do we do it? Trying to scavenge CO2, in other words, remove CO2 from the effluent, the flue gases of power plants, is not trivial, and nor is it expensive when you think that a big power station can pump out something like 3,000 tonnes of CO2 just in an afternoon. Well, what about borrowing from nature? Because CO2 levels on the scale of the Earth have changed over tectonic timescales every few million years, and that's because of plate tectonics. In other words, when the tectonic plates of the Earth move around, they can push up mountains. And what happens is that this displays to the atmosphere various minerals that are in those rocks, and those minerals react with CO2, and they remove CO2 from the atmosphere and turn it into rock. Well, can we do the same stunt? Well, Peter Kellerman, who is a researcher at Columbia University in America, says yes, and he's got a paper in this week's edition of the journal PNAS, and in this he sets out a strategy whereby we could do this. His approach is to say, let's focus on the mineral olivine. This is a a mineral of magnesium. It's a magnesium silicate. It's one of the most abundant chemicals in the Earth's mantle, which is normally quite deep down on Earth, but obviously where there are mountains, it comes close to the surface. And if you were to pipe CO2 into the olivine, it would react with the magnesium silicate to produce magnesite, which is magnesium carbonate, a solid, and it would also produce some silica, SiO2, sand, to you and I. Now, this process means that you would have to pump the CO2 in slightly warm at about 30 degrees C, but the reaction that happens is very exothermic. It gives out heat, so very quickly it would start to fuel itself. It would run itself. The reaction would heat up to about 185 degrees, and this would make the reaction happen very vigorously. And the result would be, he says, that for every one kilometre cubed of rock that you involved in this reaction, you could remove from the atmosphere something like 4 billion tonnes of CO2. So that's more than 10% of what we produce every single year. Are there any negative effects? Well, possibly. I asked him this, and Peter told me that one possibility is that you could get swelling of the rock, because obviously the, the solids take up more space, and this could lead to local land deformation and swelling. In other words, you could get miniature earthquakes and, and seismic effects, but they would be on the small scale. Where are all these deposits of rock? Are they readily available? Yes, they are, he says. And some of the biggest places, ironically, where they're found most, are in the Saudi Arabia, United Arab Arab Emirates, 
Oman, Balkans, so lots of places where we're already getting fossil fuels that are responsible for the problem in the first place. So isn't it ironic that the place with the solution is also the place making the problem in the first place? It sounds fantastic. I mean, is there really enough olivine out there to deal with the carbon dioxide we're putting out now and in years to come and in years to come into the future? Is, it, is there really enough of it? If you're saying it's four billion tonnes of carbon dioxide per cubic kilometre. A cubic kilometre is quite a lot, isn't it? But we've got quite a big planet. The radius of the Earth is about 6,000 kilometres, so if you work out the volume of the Earth, and the mantle is a huge amount of that, and this is the most abundant chemical on Earth, this is very eminently feasible. And Richard Branson has given a prize to, or or offered a prize to the first person who can sequester, lock away, a billion tonnes of CO2. This would certainly be in that ballpark. And although um, I asked Peter Kellerman if he's going to write to Richard Branson and ask if he can submit this, and he said, I think he wants to hear something a little bit more concrete than just a, a paper in PNAS. But at the same time, the strategy probably will work. Perhaps one day uh, soon, someone will give it a go. Well, there's been another bit of news about the fight against future climate change this week, and it might have an unexpected ally in the form of mushrooms living in the soil of northern spruce forests of Alaska, Canada and Scandinavia. Steve Allison and Kathleen Tresseed from the University of California, Irvine, conducted experiments in Alaska and found that when temperature increases, fungi living in the forest floor dry out and emit less carbon dioxide, which is actually the opposite of what researchers expected to find since colder climates are thought to slow down the processes by which fungi produce carbon dioxide in the first place. Well, this study was published in the journal Global Change Biology this week and it involved Alison and Tresseed going out into the forests of Alaska and setting up several small greenhouses, well, quite a lot of them. And at the start of the experiment, at the beginning of the growing season in May, the scientists kept the conditions inside the greenhouses the same as in nearby control plots. Then they closed the greenhouses and the temperature of the air went up by 5 degrees Celsius and the temperature of the soil went up by 1 degree. Now, by carefully measuring the gases in all these experimental plots, what they found was that by the end of the growing season... In August, the amount of carbon dioxide produced by the soil in the greenhouse plots was around half of that produced in the unheated control plots. Now, Alison and Tresseed found that there was about half as much fungi also inside the heated greenhouses as in the unheated plots, which indicates that when the temperature increases, much of the fungi seem to really just die back and become inactive, and that could be why there's so much less carbon dioxide being produced. Mm, Sounds dodgy, though, doesn't it? Because fungi have a very important role to play in the ecosystem they're the major recyclers so when detritus falls to the forest floor it's the fungi that take the nutrients and return them to the soil so they're available for other other processes and other plants so if if those fungi aren't there that's not good news for the soil is it it doesn't sound to me like that would be good news at all so i think this kind of effect could well have important knock-on um ecosystem effects that would need to be considered if this is something we're looking at so really this this isn't obviously a solution to climate change but it's an interesting effect to have found in another direction we often are finding the things that are getting worse when the temperature goes up so maybe this will have a little effect and one reason why we think maybe you know this is something interesting to think about is that we think that these northern forests actually lock away half the world's global carbon in the soils the soil carbon rather um, in these northern forests so they are playing a very important role in keeping a lot of that carbon out of the atmosphere so I suppose at the very least we can look at this as perhaps a bit of good news that all that carbon isn't going to be released very much more quickly as the planet begins to heat up if it does Um, but as I said there are these knock-on effects that we could be seeing so it's something that we need to look at I think in a lot more detail.
And of course, uh, there's probably a much bigger uh, skeleton lurking in that climate change closet because um, a major problem is as the planet warms and the ice recedes from, say, high latitudes and the Arctic Circle, there are lots and lots of frozen lakes and frozen permafrosts in Siberia which have got lots of uh, organic matter frozen into them. And as soon as that material defrosts, it starts to be attacked by bacteria and fungi and turned into carbon dioxide and methane. And this is very potent greenhouse gas. So probably worrying a little bit about the fungi is only looking at one small part of the equation. There's probably a lot more serious events going to happen here because of a warming planet, if it does happen in the future. I think so. But as I say, you know, it's we need to understand a lot more just about the whole system works. And this is one, one part of that puzzle. Worry, though. <clears throat> well, look, here's a human worry. And that's the question of alcoholism, because the stats are really quite worrying. One person in 20 is affected by alcoholism in the UK and worldwide. It's millions of people. But it turns out that it, that it could be that some people are genetically predestined to have a preponderance to become alcoholic. And this is an interesting piece of research that's been done by Gilles Martin, who's a researcher at the University of Massachusetts. He and his colleagues have genetically modified mice to try and understand what happens in the brain of mice and possibly therefore people who are exposed to alcohol. And in recent years, they've focused their attentions on a pore, a sort of nerve channel on the surface of nerve cells called BK, which allows potassium to go into cells. And when potassium goes into nerve cells, it damps down their activity. And when alcohol is added to a nerve cell, this pore becomes much more active. So more potassium goes into the cell and makes it less active. That's why when you drink, you feel uh, depressed to a certain extent but also thought processes slow people become drowsy and sleepy and in big doses they will become unconscious because of this effect so they wanted to know how does alcohol affect this poor and try and gain an understanding of a phenomenon called tolerance because what we know about people who abuse alcohol or drink a lot is that once you've started having regular intake of alcohol you can sustain a very high level of alcohol in the blood but the brain functions nearly normally so in other words how does this channel adapt even though the alcohol is still there so that it becomes less sensitive to the effect of alcohol and they focused on one small part of the channel called the beta 4 subunit and what they did was to remove this gene for the beta 4 subunit from their mice and then study how these channels worked in in the laboratory and they found that the removal of this individual little bit of this pore made the mice become the equivalent of alcoholics they had this very rapid tolerance building up in their brains so it looks like they're suggesting perhaps people who have a tendency towards alcoholism have too little of this beta 4 protein in their channels in their brain or perhaps they have a mutated version so either way there's therefore the potential to have a test to determine whether you're at risk of becoming an alcoholic or there might be possibilities of making a drug which stabilises the beta-4, increasing the level in the brain, making you less likely to become addicted, or providing you with a way to treat the problem, which is encouraging. Are they going to start looking at sort of ex experiments to test that on the mice? Are they going to? Well, they've done it on the mice. The next step is to say, let's look at the human equivalent. Now we know this is the thing to focus on. We can focus our attention on this and see, because this gene is in humans too. Do humans have the same behaviour? Do they show the same effects? Are there different bits of the brain that have a different form of this? And as a result... Are some people with different forms of this gene more likely to have a problem? It would be interesting, wouldn't it, to, to get a genetic test to know if, if you're predisposed to alcoholism. I don't know what, how you'd respond as an individual to that. That's quite, um, quite interesting. But um, my last story this week comes from the world of technology, and that's uh, news of the world's most tiny solar panels that have been built and tested. And one day they may, in the not-too-distant future, be used to power even tinier microscopic machines. Now, these solar panels were built by Chow Mei Jiang and her team of researchers from the University of South Florida in the States. And their study, published in the Journal of Renewable and Sustainable Energy, describes how they built tiny solar panels about the size of a lowercase o in 
point font on a computer. So pretty small. Just looking at a 12.0, that's not very yes, big, is it? it's pretty tiny. And to make these tiny solar cells, the researchers didn't simply take normal photovoltaic solar cells, um, the sort of panels you might see on rooftops, and make them much, much smaller. They actually, because um, the, the regular solar panels are actually built on a brittle backing material made of silicon, um, similar to the sort of thing that computer chips are built on. Instead, um, these guys took um, made tiny solar cells based on an organic polymer that has the same properties as silicon, but that can be dissolved into a fluid and then sprayed and printed onto basically any flexible backing material. So theoretically, you know, anything that's in, t- in touch with light, you can actually make into a solar panel. But Jiang and her team are developing these tiny panels with the hope that one day they might power a type of microscopic sensor that can be used for detecting dangerous chemicals and toxins. Now, these detectors are built from carbon, carbon nanotubes. These are the tiny cylinders of carbon that are about 50,000 times thinner than a human hair. And the idea is that when the, the nanotubes are hooked up to a power source of around 15 volts, they can detect tiny amounts of particular chemicals by measuring the electric charges um, that occur when different chemicals enter the tubes. And the exact change in the charge is an indicator of what type of chemical is present. Now, have they done this? Well, so far, they've put together an inch-long array of around 20 of these tiny cells, but that's only generated 7.8 volts. So the next step is for them to make slightly more powerful um, solar um, panels, which they think they're going to be able to do by the end of the year. And perhaps that's uh, a new story we can follow up on. And it's amazing how some of the biggest discoveries involve some of the smallest amounts of technology. Thanks very much, Helen. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientists.com. That's all for this week. Thanks very much for listening. The Naked Scientist Newsflash featured Chris Smith and Helen Scales and was produced by me, Ben Valsler. If you've enjoyed the news flash, why not try out the weekly Naked Scientist podcast, which features news, interviews with top scientists from all over the world, your questions, and a kitchen science experiment for you to try out at home. We'll be back with another news flash next week. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. <laughs>